Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon and this is the Snooker Scene Podcast and Michael McMullen joins me once again. In this edition, we're going to be uh, discussing some of the unsung heroes in snooker, people who are not necessarily known as players, but have served various roles in the game and have been influential in areas of, of snooker. And uh, we'll also be looking ahead to, because the World Qualifiers have uh, announced some information about that, the Tour Championships coming up, and also have an update from our friend who's been recreating the 1982 World Championship. But it's a sad day today because, of course, uh, Willie Thorne passed away earlier today. Um, an instantly recognisable character in the sport, big character in the sport, as a player, later a commentator, one of the best known figures, I would say, just instantly, a bit like Dennis Taylor. You know, you just he's such a recognisable character. And in his day, Michael, a very fine player. If you say to people now, Willie Thorne won the 1985 Mercantile Credit Classic and it was his only ranking title, people might think that that wasn't much of an achievement. Well, those of us who were around in the 80s can tell you, Winning a ranking event then was a really, really big deal because there were only six of them at that time, even at its peak. Uh, they were all week-long events. Everybody played in every ranking event, and the matches were longer. And also, the limited number of ranking events there were, Steve Davis won most of them. Mm. So most people didn't really get a look in. What you had to hope was that somebody else would knock out Steve Davis before he got to you, or that you could knock him out yourself. Now, when Willie got his opportunity to do that in the semi-final of the Mercantile, he had to do it the hard way because it was best of 17. That was the standard for ranking semi-finals in those days. He managed to do it. And then after that, I mean, what an effort that was to beat Steve over best of 17. He then had to play Cliff Thorburn over best of 25. Now, that was an absolute slog as well for him to do. He managed to do it, pulled away in what happened, a very close match, finished very strongly and won it. And people often talk about 1985 and the 18 million who watched the World Championship final that year, which was remarkable, but not as remarkable as you might think, because that was standard at that time to have audiences, at least in that region. And that Mercantile final, I think the audience for that was something like 14 or 15 million. Now consider that's about a quarter of the entire population of the UK. And it was helped by the fact that those of us who were around in 85 will remember it was a really, really harsh winter. 
It's just after Christmas as well. The Mercantile used to be played. So nobody was going out. So huge audiences throughout that tournament. It really was a massive deal. And even if that was the only thing he'd achieved in his career, to do that at that time really marked you out as uh, a genuine top player. Yeah, I've been thinking about Willie today. And of course, he's for the likes of us, he's always kind of been there, hasn't he, in, in snooker? I mean, I looked at the 1977 World Championship, the first at the Crucible, and he played in that. And he was the youngest player in that. He was 23. Now, when you're young... You, you, you know, you have a memory of everyone just being really old because everyone is old when you're young. He was only 23. He was like a young gun at the time. He'd come through, he'd been English amateur runner-up. He'd won the, the boys' championship that Clive organised um, and, you know, turned pro when the hardly any tournaments, made his way against some very tough players. In some ways, I think as a player, you know, he would be better suited to playing now. His game was very attacking. Yeah. He, you know, he was a break builder. I mean, we know all the maximums he had in practice and so on, but he, he wasn't necessarily someone who wanted to be slugging it out at safety. He was a break builder. Um, and certainly when you heard his commentary on, on the likes of Henry O'Sullivan, you, you could see he really, you know, got what they were doing and, and, and sort of, you know, had, had that in his armour as well. Um, but he was kind of, like I say, he was always kind of there in the 80s uh, to the mid-90s. He, he played, I think, 19 times at the Crucible. I think he only missed 1979. Um, and then even when he stopped playing, he was still always there. He was a commentator. He was the absolute go-to guy if you wanted, for example, a charity auction. I saw him do that a few times at the World Snooker Awards. I mean, he's absolutely superb at holding a room. Um, he did a lot of corporate work. It's interesting today reading the tributes on Twitter. So many people from the sporting world and beyond who would have mixed in that world, you know, going to the corporate dues and charity dues, where Willie was a, just such a natural at doing all that stuff. Very good with people, uh, had huge charisma. Um, I think that that's something you're kind of born with, but also he would have actually worked at the sort of act as well, because like I say, when he came into snooker, there was no money and he saw the Reardons and those sort of guys who were going around the, the exhibition circuit, holiday camps, trying to scratch out a living. Um, so uh, regardless of what he won or what he didn't, and I agree with everything you say about the Mercantile, it was a huge event to win at the time. I don't think when we look at his career, it's all about titles. I think a lot of it is actually about him. He had an incredible sort of magnetic personality, really. He was very warm. I think we all know because he's spoken about it himself, some of the, the bad choices he made, obviously gambling, you know, gripped him very tightly. Um, but, you know, that that's all part of a, a, a long life. And I think when people think of Willie, a lot of them will smile. There's so many stories. We were telling some last week at the Championship League, even, you know, even though he was ill, we, you can't help but tell some of the old stories. And he was a character who did sort of enrich Snooker with his personality. And it was something we alluded to last week in connection with something else. He'd be far better known among the general public than yeah. a lot of players who achieved more in their careers. You, you take even an example like Matthew Stevens. He won the Masters. He won the UK. Willie famously actually never won the UK. He almost won it in 85. He never won the Masters. Matthew Stevens was in two world finals, five semifinals in addition to that as well. So had a more outstanding career than Willie Thorne. That's absolutely, you know, guaranteed. But people would know someone like Willie far, far more because of all that. He didn't just disappear when he stopped being a good player. And he remained a good player actually for a long time, well into the 90s. And as late as 1996, he played Steve Davis, who was still number two in the world at the time in the first round of the World Championship. And he had a very good chance to beat him before Steve finished strongly and just got across the line. And you were saying there that he might be better suited to today's game. I absolutely agree. I also think in his prime, he was better suited to playing the best players because mm. very often 
he would have these seasons where he'd have a couple of really good tournaments, but he'd also have some very early defeats. And I think he used to get frustrated because he'd be playing players who he knew he was much better than. He knew he should beat. And if it wasn't coming easily to him, he seemed to get frustrated by it and would end up losing the match as a result. I remember when Tony Drago knocked him out of the UK Championship very early on in Drago's career and the year after Willie should have won it. Willie made some comments afterwards that really underlined that frustration and showed the fact that he knew this was a match that he should have won. It was a player he should have beaten. He then would have got a shot at Davis in the quarterfinals a year on from having played him in the final. And he'd missed it. And we also remember 25 years ago this year, actually, when he got really frustrated and quite heated, actually, against Andy Hicks in the, mm. uh, the World Championship. Again, that was a match he knew he should win. It would have put him in the World Quarterfinals, which he hadn't been in for nine years at that stage. And the frustration often got the better of him. And we talk, of course, I mean, we can't talk about Willie's life without the missed blue that would have given him a stranglehold on that UK final against Davis in 85. They actually met in another final. It was the only ranking final Willie played after that in the British Open just a few months later. And Willie was 8-1 down, but got right back into it, close to 10-7 before Steve pulled away to win 13-7. But for years after that, he was really good at winning sort of the more low-key events, things like the Hong Kong Masters, the New Zealand Masters, the Matchroom Professional. He won the first proper tournament there ever was in China in 1987. But like I say, I think he got a bit bogged down in the more standard ranking events when there was a bit more pressure and he, he wasn't mixing it all the time with the best players. He was sometimes having to play players that he knew he was much better than, but couldn't always get the better of in his day. And the other thing we have to mention as well, he was the first player ever to make a 1-4-7 in recognised tournament conditions that wasn't televised. The one he made at the UK in 87, where he went on to reach the semi-finals. That was in the pre-televised phase. It was only the fourth recognised 147 there had ever been, and all the others had been on TV. And for someone who liked to trade on the idea that he was Mr. Maxman, because he used to talk about how many of them he made in practice, uh, he would have loved the fact that he did have that one little landmark. Yeah, and I think also, Willie, um, he did move commentary on in, in his own way as well. He worked for the BBC. I think he started in about 84, um, but didn't last very long. And I think they, they just felt he talked too much. We've spoken before about how they were told there was an edict. You know, you, you basically you can't talk, in, uh, you know, for more than sort of three shots in a row or something. And that wasn't that wasn't the style that he developed. But I think he, he definitely when he went to Sky, um, because Sky, people sort of forget about Sky's um, contribution now, yeah. but but their coverage was quite revolutionary the way they did it. They encouraged more analysis. It wasn't sort of platitudes. It was proper analysis. Willie was very much at the forefront of that, either in front of the camera in the studio or in the commentary box. And then that had an effect on the way the BBC then started to do it. Um, and, of course, he eventually went back to the BBC. So, um, look, everyone has their own opinions on commentary, but there's no doubt Willie, Willie absolutely understood, you know, the art of break building. I think that was his great skill explaining that. I think sometimes on commentary, and Mark, Mark Selby was saying, interview today you know he could be very he could maybe forget the pressure the players are under but he, he always kind of w was hoping for attacking snooker that's why I mentioned Henry O'Sullivan you know he's in his element watching them uh, bottom line is he was he, you know he's much missed he, he was uh, a, a character in, in, in snooker and indeed beyond snooker who touched a lot of people um, as I say you know there was he had problems as well well everyone does that's part of being a human being I just feel very sad that for such a gregarious person who loved life and loved people that he ended up, you know, in a foreign country, essentially on his own. Yeah. He, had this, he had this carer with him who, who looked after him at the end, but essentially on his own. Um, very, very sad circumstances. And, and I think any snooker fan would be very sad today because, mm. you know, it's kind of, particularly if you've grown up watching him, because 
you know, the, the circuit and the sport is like a bit of a family. And, and he was, you know, a, one of one of the sort of favoured members of that family. I mean, you, you mentioned his, his Sky days there. And of course, there was that great era when they used to show lots of ranking events and they revolutionised the coverage in a lot of ways. I remember Willie saying he was coming towards the end of his career, but he was still a fairly capable player. And I remember him saying at one stage, uh, his last remaining ambition was to reach the quarterfinals of a Sky event. Now, that sounds like a, a bit of a specific thing, but there was so, some reasoning behind it. Because when Barry became chairman of World Snooker and he introduced the musical walk-ons and that, people talked about it like it was revolutionary. Well, it wasn't at all because Sky had been doing that since the 1990s. And Willie loved the idea, and he was quite open about this was his motivation. He loved the idea of just experiencing that once with the music playing and him walking down the stairs into the arena. That just underlined how much he loved the limelight. And you, you say there about, well, we both mentioned how he was so well known among the general population. It was a mate of mine from Dublin, he's back living in Dublin now, but he was living in Leeds about 20 years ago. And one year he drove over to Sheffield one night during the World Championship to meet up with me for a few drinks. And you'll probably remember, Dave, there was a games room at the Crucible that year, mm. working at the Championship. And there was darts, I think it was table football, maybe table tennis. But there was also a small snooker table, sort of six by three, and then a pool table. And I think I was playing on the snooker table with my mate and Willie Thorne was playing on the next table. And they did that thing that we've all done over the years where you both lean down on adjoining tables to mm. play a shot at the same time and you bang into each other. And my mate thought this was fantastic. I remember when, when we were back home later that summer, he was telling someone he's not, you know, that much of a snooker fan himself. He was telling someone else who wouldn't know much about the game. He said, you won't believe what happened. I went to Sheffield and I bumped back sides with Willie Thorne. So, well, he did say he touched a lot of people. In that case, it was definitely true. But it was, it was funny. It was sort of a big deal to people. And I put them in the same category as John Virgo, both of them very, very good players, but whose sort of familiarity among the general public is way, way ahead of uh, what they achieved on the table. And they were so widely known. And as you mentioned there, he cultivated that. We said this about Dennis the other week. These were guys who recognised when they came along that snooker was taken off in a massive way. They weren't going to be playing forever, so they had to cultivate this other side, this kind of cabaret exhibition act, the TV commentary as well, and that that was probably going to provide them with their income later on in their career. So we mentioned it with Dennis and, of course, John Virgo as well would certainly fall into that category. And I think Willie would be uh, certainly in, in that category as well. Yeah, and he did get to play, of course, one last time at the Crucible last year. He played in the World Seniors, um, which I know means a lot to him, just being there again. And okay, he wasn't expecting much, but he got to he got to stand on that stage again. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more uh, memories of Willie in the in the coming days. Of course, uh, on Saturday, the Tour Championship starts. Um, looking forward to that. Of course, he's back at Milton Keynes, and uh, we've just had the Championship League there. But this is a more uh, recognisable sort of standard tournament. It's only, of course, four matches in the in the first round. I don't think we want to do a massive preview, but um, I, I think the match I'm looking forward to most in that first round is Higgins-Trump. I mean, for yeah. obvious, re- obvious reasons, rematch of the World Championship. It seems to me one of the... One of the sort of things that has changed for Trump is he, he finally knows how to beat Higgins because early on when they played, John sort of had the measure of him. But now I think he's won possibly the last four or five meetings against Higgins. He seems to, I think he's sort of got over the the sort of puzzlement. How do you play this master tactician? Because he's got a lot of that on his side now. And of course he can outpot anybody. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what sort of John Higgins we see because he's not he didn't play in the Championship League, did he? I, I think he mm. sat, sat that one out and he didn't play in Gibraltar either. So he's not played since February. And, you know, John's got a lot else going on in his life and he's got uh, four children. So, 
you wonder how much work he's been putting in now for an event like I this. Think, I, 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 sorry, I think he's got three children. I think we, we, we want to get that. We want to get that right. He <laughs> could have been the Boris Johnson of the snooker world. There for <laughs> yeah. A yeah, he's Thanks got so three. Much. Three. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, listen, that's a lot. Anyway, in, in, in <laughs> itself. So he, um, it'll be interesting to see now. I'm sure he'll have knuckled down for a bit, but. I don't imagine he's been practicing much since March and he certainly hasn't played a match uh, since. Well, like I say, I think it was February the last time he played a match. So it'll be interesting to see what what sort of John Higgins we see there. But then again, Judd Trump at the Championship League. Now, I know it was short matches, but he didn't exactly turn up either. Mm. So, you know, the Tour Championship last year was absolutely brilliant. It's a format which lends itself to being a great tournament. And I'm sure it will be in its own way. But the standard of play probably won't be as high as it was last year because back then they were all played in. They've been playing tournament after tournament for months on end. Obviously, it's a very different situation this time. So the chances there for anyone who has managed to keep their game in shape and who does manage to emerge again uh, looking good uh, to walk off with one of the biggest titles. Yan Bing Tao, I mean, he's in the field. you got to wonder. I mean, he's someone who you would imagine could go through all these months of lockdown and still keep practicing the same way every day. So we'll see how he gets on. It'll be great. I think it's a match a day and it starts on Saturday on ITV4 in the UK. Um, not entirely sure. I think it's on various different platforms outside the UK, uh, which reminds me, actually, last last week you mentioned Macedonia. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Michael Day from the WPBSA sent me a link to an article he wrote last year about snooker in North Macedonia, um, which seems to be really taking off. And actually, on the, on a similar theme, it's on the WPBSA website, you can check it out. On a similar theme, I noticed recently they had the Lithuanian National Championship, which oh, was yes. won, won by a 16-year-old. There's also this 14-year-old, uh, Julian Boyko, from the Ukraine, who's coming on to the circuit. So, you know, in Eastern Europe, um, it seems that snooker is taking off and that, that can only be good news. They're playing catch-up. And again, it's going to be the question... You know, how do you, okay, you can be the best player in Lithuania, but how do you make the step up? Normally it involves coming to Britain. That involves money, getting funded. That's not always possible. It's, it's, I think this is an issue that's never kind of been properly addressed. How do you sort of break the British grip on the sport? And I don't mean in terms of just the players. I mean, actually the administration of it. Um, that's probably a, a whole podcast to discuss. But anyway, thanks, Michael, to set, for sending that in. Um, and we've also had an update from Dave Tyndall. Now, Dave, if you've been, oh, following, yeah, been following this, we've talked about this Fantasy World Championship more than the actual World Championship. He played, for those uh, tuning in or, or just have forgotten, um, he decided to reenact the 1982 World Championship on his own table. And it transpired last week that Steve Davis beat Kirk Stevens in a decider. So that was all clear. But um, he was also... Sentence when I started this podcast, I wasn't expecting to say. He's also been looking for a bulbal cut out of Alan Weeks, the former yeah. pop black presenter. And uh, he bought at uh, the price that, uh, that... We still don't quite know who was offering it, but £62 was the... The given price for the um, the cut out of Alan Weeks, he balked at that. So, but he's come up with a solution. Now, I know this doesn't really work on a podcast because I can't show you the picture, but he actually has essentially constructed his own cut out of Alan Weeks. Um, he took a screen grab from an old pot black and essentially essentially blew up Alan Weeks and he's cut out. He, I'm looking at it now. He, he, he's looking rather startled actually, Alan Weeks. Um, but he is now part of the, uh, literally the furniture in this little room he's got where he plays his snooker. He's, the picture also of the Steve Davis and Kirk Stevens wig. But then, but that wasn't enough for Dave, just, just that. He then sent me a video of, of himself making, he's got, he's got a small table, 10 reds. And I'll tell you what, he's a good player, David, David because he made uh, essentially a maximum of 107. Um, wow. As, Was this as, during the championship? 
This was no. This this was uh, it was recently because in the background the Championship League was on, so this is quite recent. But he's wearing the Steve Davis wig. Um, at, but he sa- he says here now this is you, you want niche. This is niche. He says I timed it at three minutes fifty seven seconds, which got me thinking. I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the fastest maximum ever scored on a six by three by someone wearing a Steve Davis wig. But I'm equally sure it's nowhere near the fastest 107 on a 6x3. So there's a clear distinction there. Um, could you help me find out what the record is? The Guinness Book of Records. What did he say? Uh, three minutes, 57 seconds. That's incredible. I mean, you know, you consider the amount of shots. I mean, even with 10 reds, you've still got 26 balls in that time. Well, I wondered. I wondered if I'd fallen victim to some sort of editing scam. I don't know, um, but uh, I, I like to think I haven't. But anyway, he said um, the Guinness Book of Records doesn't have it, although it does say an Egyptian guy in t- 2014 was the first to score 83 and six red snooker, maximum 75, must have a free ball. I'm surprised, given the popularity of six by three snooker, there's no official fastest time. Well, I guess the problem is how, how on earth can you work out? You know, all the all the all the kids who've had six by threes and just people who play in the garage. Who's, who's even timing it? That's the thing. So I, I, I'm guessing Norris McWhorter, were he still alive, would probably have bigger fish to fry at the Guinness Book of Records than, than, work, than working that out. But uh, if anyone, you know, if anyone can tell us if it's been done quicker than that or what the record is, uh, let us know. But uh, it's clear that uh, you know Dave, he, he wasn't sated by just reenacting a whole world championship. He's no. now got his, got his sights set on higher things, and we, we'll, we'll be following his progress with great interest. He's gone down a rabbit hole here, hasn't he? Because once you start down this, I mean, you know, where does it all end? He'll play out an entire championship league or something over the next few weeks and, and write to us again. His big mistake, of course, with the Alan Weeks thing was he went public with his quest. Mm-hmm. And then somebody obviously heard the podcast and put this online for, for that price. I know myself, actually, when I had a six by three at home, I definitely remember getting as far once as seven reds and seven blacks. And mm-hmm. I think another time I missed the eighth black, which I guess is as close to a maximum as getting to the 13th black on a full-size table. But it's really hard to do, you know, because obviously the table's much smaller and there's, you know, you don't really have any long pots. They're all short pots, really, because of the size of the table. But again, you know, even with the reduced number of reds, if you consider you've only got five less balls, but a six by three is a quarter the size of a full-size. So the balls all get in the way of each other, it, and it can actually become a lot harder than, than you imagine. But this is great. I, I want to get weekly updates from him. I think we should get him on some week, actually. That will, yeah, well, that will, ha- that will happen at some point, yeah. I guarantee. In fact, it'll probably end up being his podcast. I'll just get, out, just get booted out. And the cardboard cutout of Alan Weeks will come upside down. Like fantasy football league for the 2020s. Well, it'll probably still be better than that one we did when I was in Milton Keynes on the on the dodgy yeah. Wi-Fi. Anyway, anyway, so let us know, Dave, uh, your next uh, step, if that's the word. Um, so anyway, the main topic today is about, as I say, essentially the idea is we've talked a lot about you know, the greatest players uh, uh, in snooker, in various guises. But I thought, why not acknowledge some of the people who made a contribution who are not players? And that's essentially it. Now, I, I had to sort of... I had to draw a rule for myself, which which Michael doesn't have to follow. But I decided not to pick anyone who's been a player. So, for example, obviously Clive Everton would be someone, or Mike Watterson would be someone who have made big contributions. But they were professional players. Um, I thought of Mandy Fisher actually, who's done a lot for women's snooker, but she was a player. I've ruled out Barry Hearn just because I think we've spoken about Barry so much. I mean, he's another obvious one. Uh, Neville Chamberlain, who invented snooker, another obvious one. So I've chosen three. Uh, you've chosen three. And we'll we'll see where we get. And I'm going to start because it links into the news today. 
I was talking about Willie Thorne, and I'm going to start with his brother, Malcolm Thorne. Um, Malcolm actually is always kind of, whenever anyone mentions him, he's, he's passed away himself several years ago, but whenever he's talked about he's always talked about as Willie's brother, um, which is an obvious link to make. But he played his own very important role in the lives of many snooker players by managing Willie Thorns in Leicester, the club there, and running countless, um, and I really do mean countless because there's so many of them, junior and amateur tournaments. The grassroots is the bedrock of any sport. Young players need somewhere to start, somewhere to learn. They need to experience tournaments uh, as a test of temperament as much as skill and as a, as a way of inspiring them to improve. And they need to take the knocks and they need to come back stronger. That's how you develop as a sports person. And Malcolm dedicated himself to putting on events for these young talents for many years. Players like Judd Trump he used to travel there, Sean Murphy, of course, Mark Selby, who, who played at the club, have a lot to thank him for. Indeed, in Selby's case, Malcolm essentially rescued him from a very uncertain future. Mark's family had no money. Malcolm let him practice for free if he did some jobs around the club. And, and of course, Mark grabbed the opportunity of both hands and has become one of the all-time greats. And, uh, you know, I personally, I've dealt with Malcolm quite a lot through the magazine because he supplied us with information reports from his tournaments. And he was very passionate. Um, he used to work for the old EASB and amateur snooker. He's very passionate, but he could. I know he also got frustrated at times that, you know, the administrators were always sort of seem to be changing goalposts or not seeing things like he did. He was someone who really thought amateur snooker was something worth nurturing and protecting. He didn't just see it as a stepping stone to the professional ranks. He saw it as something very important in his own right. And he provided these opportunities. Someone like Judd Trump will tell you, certainly Selby, Murphy, these sort of guys, they will tell you how invaluable that was, not just to be playing snooker, but to be playing tournament snooker against other you know, the other best juniors in the country and finding out actually how good you are and how much you need to improve. As I say, Malcolm, he passed away a few years ago now, but he has left an indelible mark um, on, on the game through his through the achievements of the players who've come along and come on to be world beaters. And he'd be very proud, obviously, of Selby and, and of course, Judd Trump last year becoming world champion. And how many times have we seen it in recent years? We see a player win the world championship or some other big event. And when they talk about who they want to thank, Malcolm Thorne is one of the names who comes up again and again. And it's such a shame that more use wasn't made of him because he's someone who could have been fantastic for the game. And it's always been the case that it's less so now, of course. There's much more interaction, but the professional game and the amateur game existed almost entirely independently of each other. Malcolm would have been a great asset, not just to be part of the professional game and the WPBSA as it was then, but to be part of a more integrated setup, he could have been the link between the pro game and the amateur game. Certainly you've seen this now, what's happened in the UK and in Ireland as well. I think the amateur game has been neglected for many, many years. So we've got all these wonderful tournaments and great players, but very little coming up behind them. Someone like Malcolm would have been ideal for that. He did stand for the WPBSA board during the very, very dark days of what we call the civil wars. And he, he didn't get on. I think it might have been the old system where they they only counted the votes of a certain number of people on a yes or no basis. And if you got more yeses than noes, you were in. And if by the time it got to you, all the places had been filled, mm. you were basically excluded. I think it was, it was that sort of scene. But yeah, someone who did contribute a lot and had he been given the chance, I think could have contributed a huge amount more. Yeah, and like I say, that that um, the club that of, of Willie, obviously had Willie's name, but Malcolm Rowney, that was... An absolute seminal, uh, you know, club in Britain in terms of the development of, of, of careers. I was talking about the, you know, the, the lad from Lithuania and these other places. 
they do not have that sort of infrastructure. That's why it's harder to find, you know, talented players. It's like a training ground. I mean, Neil Robertson, when he came over, when he was a teenager, he played in a lot of those events and it certainly toughened him up. So, yeah, Malcolm Thorne is my first choice. Over to you. Well, before I do that, the great news is uh, we're having the alarm, uh, the burglar alarm fixed here. And the guys just turned up to do it. So there's a very good chance at some point in the next 10 minutes, you're going to hear a huge alarm siren going off. Fantastic. So, uh, because, because, because the audio quality is usually so good. So that's going right. to throw it off, throw it off a little bit. But anyway, yeah. I was going to say, we've survived worse than that on this podcast. <laughs> even in recent weeks, so I'm sure we'll get through it. Um, yeah, I'm actually going to say David Vine because okay. he was someone who, uh, I don't think he came from any kind of snooker background at all. When he started presenting snooker, the snooker, snooker, <laughs> the, the, the game, the game was very new, uh, in the sense that we know it now. And I think he played a really big role actually in making it so popular on television because I thought he was wonderful at presenting it, wonderful at setting the scene. He was part of what for me was a golden age of television sports presenters, along with the likes of Steve Ryder, Des Lynham, Dickie Davies, who did the snooker over on ITV. I don't think we'll ever see an era like that again. And I thought David Vine was absolutely magnificent and helping to sort of convey to people the significance of what was going on, simplify for people the importance of a match, the structure of a tournament, keeping everyone posted on what was going on. I thought he was very, very good at that and played a big role, actually, in popularising the game. And of course, as we've learned in recent weeks, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are coming from corners of the world where they've probably never heard of David Vine. But basically, when the BBC started showing snooker, which was really when it started to take off in a massive way in the late 70s, David Vine was very much the main man on the BBC, and he continued to be so right up to 2000. And famously, he had his big moment in the spotlight at the end of the World Championship every year. He'd be the one going out into the arena to conduct the interviews and the presentation and all the rest of it. So an absolutely colossal figure, actually, in the game's history. And uh, he was coming towards the end of his time when we started to get involved in the game. So we both got to know him a little bit. And it was great in 2005, the last ever Embassy World Championship. They invited back people like David. And I remember late in the night at that dinner they used to have after the final, I saw David and Ted Lowe sitting at the table. And I thought, well, this chance will literally never come up again. <laughs> so I went over and put my hands on their shoulders. And our, our old friend George Riley took a picture. So just fantastic on that. Nice, the last ever Embassy World Championship. Two of the guys who'd been so much at the heart of popularising it over the years. I got to have my picture taken with the two of them. So, yeah, David Vine, big, big figure, I think, in, in the game's history. And, and not just him, I suppose, but all the other people who helped to popularise it, like Dickie Davies, I mentioned there, by being very professional in their television handling of it. Well, that's the word. I think professional David Vine always wanted things done properly. And one thing he never did was did the sport down. He never treated snooker as being anything beneath him. When he was there, it was a serious business, but he also had charm and, and was able to, I think, invite viewers in. I always felt when he started a broadcast, he was welcoming you personally. He had that, yeah. he had that, he had that quality. He never did anything ironically. He never did anything, you know, it was, he, he didn't, he didn't like actually um, too much sort of behind the scenes stuff. He wanted it to be a showcase and he wanted it to be, done right and I know that when he retired I mean John Parrott will tell you when he retired he used to ring up to complain that John was wearing a sweater rather than a tie and all that sort of thing because he was from the old school that's what the BBC was you know they set the standards for, for sports broadcasting around the world never mind just in Britain um, but yeah I mean look he was they used to call him the governor and that's absolutely what he was he was a fantastic uh, broadcaster and I think you're right I think that um, just his presence was always reassuring and, and definitely um 
you knew you knew you were in safe hands with him, and and also you, it always felt important. Whatever time of the day the broadcast was on, it was worth watching. So yeah, I th- I thought he was a tremendous uh, uh, broadcaster, and and uh, like you say, wouldn't necessarily have had that much interest in snooker maybe before it all started, but very quickly became absolutely the face of the sport. I mean, just was. Yeah, I remember him talking once after some years that his wife gave out to him on holiday once because they were sitting on a beach somewhere and he was rifling through a newspaper trying to find a first round result from the British Open. So that Mm. shows you how much he did get into the game over the years. And uh, certainly for people of our age, you know, just a a hugely significant figure in our snooker education, I guess, growing up. Well, that links very nicely to my second choice, um, which is Rolf Kalb. Now, This is, as, uh, if David Vine is Britain, this is Germany. Rolf is a long-time commentator with German Eurosport. He's MC at the German Masters and at many exhibitions in Germany, and they do seem to have a lot there. Um, and his love for snooker stretches back many decades. He used to send away, I interviewed him on the podcast, he used to send away for videos of matches from friends in the UK before snooker was shown in Germany and made its way onto Eurosport, indeed, before Eurosport even existed. But I think what people don't realise, I mean, he's always immaculately turned out, you know, he's always well-prepared. I think what people don't realise is how much work he actually does behind the scenes. Um, At Eurosport, every day of every tournament, he compiles statistics, sort of centuries and and, and other other things for the other commentators to use for their work. Um, At the German Masters, when matches aren't on, he's often found in the foyer at the Tempodrome just chatting to fans, literally just talking to people, answering the questions that they have because they're not all obviously maybe first time at the snooker, don't know what's what, and generally sort of enhancing their enjoyment of having a day out at the snooker. Um, And this is absolutely true. A few years ago when I arrived in Berlin for the first time, I went to the venue quite early because I thought I wanted to see what it's all about. And I went to get my pass. And now the staff there, their English was better than my German, but I was still struggling to make myself kind of understood. And so we had this sort of standoff where they couldn't quite understand who I was or or what I was after. Then Rolf shows up and it turned out he didn't need a pass. He was his own pass, Rolf. He he was Rolf Cow. They all knew him. All of a sudden he was ushering ushering backstage, showing me around where everything was. He's a very, very professional operator, Rolf. I was talking to Joe Perry last week, actually, in Milton Keynes, because he did a bit of promotional work with, uh, I think, Sean Murphy as well at the German Masters this year. And he was saying just how impressed he was with Rolf. You know, everything was just done properly. Um, very professional, very generous. He's contributed substantially to the popularity of snooker in Germany, which obviously is re- still relatively new to the game. It doesn't have the history that Britain does, but he's helped create a lot of fans there. Obviously, they've seen it on Eurosport, but he's taught them through it. He will always answer fans you know, on forums or emails. Um, and I think the best tribute I can pay to Rolf is that if he suddenly disappeared, say he won the lottery and retired, I have to say, I think even if he won the lottery, he wouldn't retire. But say he did, I think you would then appreciate his contribution because you would miss him. You would miss the things that he does. So, you know, I, I'm, I, I really uh, have to pay tribute to Rolf. I think he's been a great figure for snooker in Germany and indeed across Europe. And the, a lot of the boom over there, you know, is down to him and the way he sort of guided viewers through it. And you were talking earlier about the interest that there is in some countries, but how do you really manage to capitalise that and harness it into making snooker mainstream and getting events on? And I think that's the key, isn't it? If in a particular country you have a Rolf Kalb, that can make a massive difference. Do you think with Thailand as well, 
Sundu Pulsivarong or Pulsivarong. Mm. I've never quite been able to grasp to, to master that pronunciation. But, uh, you know, he had a big role there. So if you had someone like that in other countries doing the legwork behind the scenes, because people see these events going on and they think, oh, yeah, there's an event in Germany and that. They've no idea of the groundwork that goes in often for years to make these things actually happen and to just appear on your TV screen someday. So, yeah, if we had more Rolf Kalbs in the game, then uh, you would have to think it would be bigger in a lot more countries. But we always come back to the same thing with Germany. The interest has just exploded, but it hasn't translated at all, really, into the playing side. Had a couple of guys on the tour, but none of them have really made any kind of impact yet anyway. Some of them, in fact, have really struggled. And wouldn't it be fantastic to see a German player come through? And we see it in nine-ball pool. Uh, I mean, the US Open winner last year, Joshua Filler, who's also won the world title. He's from Germany. They've had good players there as in the past. So clearly it is possible for Germany to produce good Q sports players. And you think of almost every major sport, they've had a top player at some stage along the way, given the interest that there is there in snooker you would like to think it might happen eventually for them in that as well we shall we shall see but uh, it's now over to you for your second choice yeah well i've picked a particular person here but it's not really him as such it's more what he represents and it's someone we both know well although we've not seen him for many years a chap called terry lyons now terry <laughs> I, uh, I think he was a referee for for a long time yeah. And then he worked in the press office, which is when we got to know him. And he, he did so actually during, again, a very, very bleak period behind the scenes in the game's sort of civil war, to use that uh, expression again. But the reason I picked Terry, it's more what he symbolises. It's a whole era of people like that who were involved in the game, probably before it was even mainstream and popular. And then they actually played a really big role in creating the culture that exists at professional events and setting the template for how things operate. There are loads of guys like Terry. A lot of them were involved as refs and maybe players at some sort of level as well. And people like that probably weren't even getting paid very much a lot of the time. But they really did play a big role on the circuit for many years. It's changed a lot now. It tends to be more full-time professionals. Certainly in the press office, it's all guys who actually work full-time for World Snooker. But people like Terry really were the heart and soul of the game for a very long time. He's some age now, but as far as I know, he's still with us. And, of course, you know, you think of Terry... There is that great story about him from the 2005 World Championship. One of his tasks every day was to look at everyone who'd signed in. Because you, you had to write your name on a sheet when you walked into the press room at the Crucible. And there were these vouchers. So it would say Imperial Tobacco, which was embassy, uh, request that lunch be provided to. And then he would just write the name, Michael McMullen or Dave Hendon, pass them out or whatever. So we decided to have a bit of fun with it and started putting in names of, you know, Gabriel Batastuta, Quincy Owusu Abeyi, Javier <laughs> Perez de Cuellar. And it just got more and more ridiculous as the days went by. And Terry would still fill every single one of them out and you'd get Imperial Tobacco, request lunch for Gabriel Batastuta. And then, of course, it all became a challenge to us. Could we get, you know, crazier and crazier names in? Uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who'd just become the Pope, mm. he signed in one day. And I think the ultimate was when someone actually managed to get a meal voucher made out in the name Pele, which I think <laughs> was the ultimate. But the thing about that was, it wasn't, we didn't do that because we didn't like Terry and wanted to wind him up. We actually did it because we liked him so much and we knew we'd have a bit of a laugh with him. I don't know if he ever found out in the end what we were actually up to. But just, I've mentioned him, but I think it's more what he symbolises. A lot of guys like that who just <laughs> loved the game, steeped in it, and played some role behind the scenes in professional events that, you know, you see the arena, you see maybe the TV studio, you don't see what goes on uh, the rest of the time at professional tournaments and in all the rest of the rooms and all the work that goes into making them happen. So Terry's my second choice, but like I say, it's more that wider snooker community 
that he represents that are picked. Absolutely. Well, he, uh, yeah, they sort of belong along with with Malcolm Thorne. Really, people who've given a lot of time to snooker at a sort of lower level. You know, you re- have to really love snooker to want to be going refereeing a sort of you know at the lower level leagues and so on and amateur tournaments. Um, a lot of weekends you have to give up to do that. Um, but all those guys, you're right. Terry, Terry um, was was a lovely chap actually. Um, I always remember he loved bingo. That was his great, that was his great passion. Um, and also, you probably won't mind me saying, a, a, a voracious smoker, but he never smoked in his car, oddly enough. So on long on, on long journeys, he must have been gasping by the end of it. Uh, but yeah, th- those guys, as you say, people like Bob Chandler and, and those sort of people, they they just summed up um, the sort of love that you have for snooker. And he was ha- he was very happy to still be involved working in the press room, just being at the World Championship. Some of those guys also would do security and just be part of it. And again, sport needs enthusiasts. And it's not all about trying to earn millions and millions from it. It's just being involved in it. And you mentioned, just, I have to interject there just to mention Bob Chander because mm. we can't let his name go by without mentioning. He's believed to be the only person to have both made and refereed <laughs> a 147. Yeah, yeah. Well, unless anyone knows differently, uh, Dave, Dave Tindall, please don't get involved in yeah, this. Yeah. We mean with 15 reds, not yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, but I, I think, I mean, the referees, you know, we've sort of talked about them a bit before, but, you know, they are doing it for the love of it. They're not doing it to try and be famous. They're not doing it for, certainly not for money, because <laughs> that's not going to work. Um, it's because, you know, I'm sure they played, but maybe, maybe apart from Bob, not to the highest standards, but just want to be there. And of course, you know, you need people like that. You need people like that supporting the sport. Um, at the very basic level, you need uh, you need officials. So yeah, I wasn't expecting Terry's name to come up, but that's uh, that's well, it. That's neither it. was I really. But when he occurred to me, I thought he'd be good to represent that sort of side of the game. I'm going to predict though, and I I hope Terry is still with us. But I'm going to predict he probably is not a big podcast listener. That's all I'm I just have thought so. Yeah. So, so he's probably not listening. But probably one man hasn't got a TV yet. Probably still yeah. <laughs> one man who is who does listen, but actually I think he, he tends to listen months later. So by about February. You might hear this, but my final choice is a friend of ours, Matt Hewitt. Now, Matt, yeah. Matt is best known, I guess, uh, well, was initially best known for Pro Snooker Blog. He started out as a fan who became a blogger, and he's now head of communications for the WPBSA. And Matt is a perfect example, I think, of a pure snooker fan. He loves the sport. He wants it to do as well as it can. Again, he loves being involved in it. He loves all levels of it. Obviously, everyone loves the pro game, but he, in recent times, he's got more involved in, in other sort of areas as well. He's a traditionalist. I think he would admit that. But he's also pragmatic enough to understand why there needs to be change at times. So, for example, we haven't mentioned the world qualifiers, but it was announced um, just this week, I think yesterday, that um, that uh, the qualifying, the first three rounds of qualifying are going to be best of 11 mm. and the last round best of 19. Now, the reason for that change is just to go off a bit of a tangent, because I meant to mention this earlier. It's, it's the coronavirus regulations. You can't have a morning session where you start a load of matches, then an afternoon session where you start a load of other matches, and then in the evening, the first lot of people come back. There's too many people involved. So they want just matches that can be played to a conclusion in one session. The judgment day, that they call it, will actually be two, two judgment days. So there's going to be eight matches played start to finish on, on one day and eight on the next day. So actually there won't be 16 finishes. And all of this is because of the, the change times that we're in. And I think Matt, now Matt, like, very much like myself, in normal circumstances, would probably rail against trimming it from best of 19 to best of 11. But I'm sure that he, well, I'm speaking for him, but I, I think he would be intelligent enough to realise that why they're doing it and why they're having to do it. Um, and I think... Also, with him, uh, and and this certainly um, stands for 
a lot of traditionalists. You know, he he he's quite a young man still. Certainly, when he got involved in sport, he did. You know, we we often associate sort of you know youngsters, as it were, teenagers or people in the early twenties, as being all about changing everything. But actually, he's the opposite. He's he's loved being he's loved snooker, particularly the World Championship, since he was a boy, and he likes it as it is. Uh, what I like about him though is because when he started Pro Snooker Blog, he started it because he saw an article online. And someone had misspelled Stephen Maguire's name, mm-hmm. and he saw and he saw that, and he thought, you know what, I could do better than them. And that that sort of petty petty pedantry is right up my street. I like I like the fact that's why he started it. Um, of course, the blog soon became very popular, not least because of Matt's extraordinary commitment to providing information on the rankings. That was a big selling point after a while, particularly you know when the points removed and giving a more accurate reflection of where, where players found themselves. A lot of players would ring him up and ask, you know, how do I stay on the tour? What, what have I got to do to get the top 16 and that sort of thing? Um, he's never been, you know, he's passionate, but he's never been a sort of ranter and raver online. He's been measured. Uh, he doesn't drink. That might, that might in part explain it. Um, you know, he's always been a respectful contributor when he comes to tournaments. As a blogger, he's been respectful of the other journalists. He's been enthusiastic. He's been positive. And instead of sort of always dwelling on the negatives, he's sort of looked for positives and has been very helpful in various ways, as I say, providing information to people. So he had the blog and then eventually the WPSA realised his worth to the sport and employed him, which was fantastic. That, that's how it ended. You mentioned Malcolm earlier. That, that didn't, he, he did, Malcolm did end up in some role, but it was kind of quite brief and he got a bit frustrated with it. But Matt is doing really good work uh, for the players of the WPSA, but also on grassroots projects such as the Women's and Disabilities Tour. And, of course, he's also a member of probably Snooker's most elite club, which is the after-after party club at the World Championship. The Tuesday the other, club. Yeah, the, the other members are you and me. Um, yes. and basically, I, 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 not I not that elite, then. No, I won't, I won't bore everyone with this, but basically what happened was, for years, we'd been going to the World Championship, and I would just go home on the Tuesday, and you'd go home. And, and I think you were flying a little bit later that day. Tuesday a few years ago so we said well why don't we just have breakfast we've never done that before on the Tuesday we did that and then we just fancied a drink it was sort of coming up to lunchtime and of course inevitably the sun's out and one drink leads to several drinks and then it became a tradition and we essentially get together for several hours every Tuesday after the World Championship and talk nonsense we won't be doing it this year because we won't be there Um, but Matt's an enthusiastic member of that and I think many snooker fans they may not recognise him at Thomas but they would certainly know him they would know his work a bit like what I said with Rolf you know if he wasn't involved you'd miss him I think he's an example of how you can go from being a fan of a sport to then playing actually a very important role in the sport. Um, it's not something he set out to do, I don't think, but he's done it. And I think you have to respect that. And I have to say, I saw him because I worked on the women's uh, and the disabilities events at the Crucible last year. And Matt was essentially organising everyone around and, you know, was getting everyone in line for pictures and so on. And I thought, isn't that great? You know, he's gone from someone who's turned up at stage door trying to get an autograph to now essentially running these events. And and good luck to him. It's fantastic. He'll be around a long time as well, because, you know, a lot of people you encounter in the sort of media and communication side of the game, it's maybe just a stopgap for them. They're involved mm. in snooker, but they actually want to move into golf or football or something like that. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But Matt has no such ambitions uh, in that regard. He wants to be part of snooker for as long as he possibly can. And he, you can tell now that he's got involved to the extent that he has, that he is going to be around for many, many years. He's involved with the, the WPBSA. And uh, I think his role in that will only get bigger and bigger <coughs> as time goes on. And you mentioned there the the switch to best of 11. I mean, that is, I absolutely agree, it has to be done, obviously, so there's no debate about the rights and wrongs of it. But the implications of it now are enormous because, mm. I mean, what is it for winning your first match? Something like 10 grand? 
mean, no, it's 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 it's, uh, it's five thousand because the the oh the formats changed this year. Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's still still plenty. It's still a huge amount to have, but far more significant than that, of course, is that we have this every year with the world qualifiers. Players are playing for their careers because mm. you know you, you you've got the issue of whether or not you drop off the tour. Now add to that the whole side of actually wanting to get to the crucible and everything that's going on there. And the fact these guys haven't had a chance to earn any money for months. So much pressure on these matches, even if they'd still been best of 19. But the fact that they're now going to be best of 11, the pressure there is going to be, all of those matches are going to be absolute slogs, just pure filth. And it's going to be <laughs> but it'll be fantastic because that's actually what the world qualifiers should be about. And I think they should put that on the poster pure filth. <laughs> it'll, it'll be, come to the qualifiers, it'll be yeah. pure filth. Yeah. Um, but I think that's going to be brilliant, actually. And, uh, you know, just to, to follow the scores throughout that week. I mean, I get tense even just keeping an eye on what's happening in the matches. and But particularly this year with the likes of Ken and Fergal battling to stay on the tour. So that's going to be a great week. And, I, I mean, obviously, ideally, you would have best of 19 from the start. But it's out of the question, actually, uh, in this situation. So although a lot of players won't like it, if you explain to them, look, it's either this or there was no world championship qualifying this year. Well, then that's the end of the matter. So it's going to be uh, going to be very interesting to uh, to see how it plays out and who reacts well and who doesn't to that uh, best of eleven format. It starts on uh, July the twenty first. Uh, meanwhile, your last choice. Yeah, um, kind of a lot in common, I suppose, with some of the other people we've mentioned here. A guy called Jim Lacey. And I won't say, talk about Jim for too long because we'd end up saying a lot of the same things that we've said about other people. But basically, Jim got involved in Irish amateur snooker some years ago at a time when actually the scene was really, really strong and just so many really good players on it. And again, just absolute heart and soul, labor of love. Not only has he not made money out of being involved, he's, I say, lost a lot of money because often he's been the one putting up prize funds for events. Even when the World Under-21 Championship was played in Ireland back in 2004, he basically put up the entire prize fund for it. So that's the sort of background he's coming from. He's got involved deeper and deeper in the snooker politics side of it. I think he's got involved in some unpleasant things, not of his making in more recent times and some of the chicanery that goes on. Uh, particularly, it seems to be an amateur snooker, even more than the pro game. But he's just been fantastic for the game in Ireland, actually, at a time when it's been needed so much because the standard of players we've been producing, with one or two exceptions, has really, really dipped in recent times. And he runs the Ivy Rooms in Carlo, which is one of the best snooker clubs you'll find anywhere. Really well maintained. It's not about the money. It's about the snooker for him. And it's been the venue for so many of the biggest Irish snooker events over a number of years. And again, someone who I feel if he had the opportunity to have more of a role in the game, be a great asset so Jim Lacey is my final choice someone who would have a lot in common with people like Malcolm Thorne and in some respects Rolf Kalb and Matt as well so uh, he's my final choice I don't know how those guys who, who work on the amateur side in, in the sort of the upper echelons I mean, have the patience for it because I've been to a few been to a few international amateur events and it's Obviously, you're dealing sometimes with different cultures, but there's a lot. There seems to be a lot of mutual suspicion um, uh, involved with different governing bodies and different sort of countries. And so much of what you hear is basically people. Pe if say there's three sort of senior officials around a table, 
any one of them could get up and leave and the other two would slag them off in any in any combination. And I, I just find that really tiresome because everyone's supposed to be working together. Of course, that's what it was like in the professional game up until about 10 years ago, um, until we got our act together. Um, there's no, it's, we know what, there's it's a, what it's still like in the snooker media scene, by the way. Just <laughs> The snooker podcast scene, yeah. yeah. Um, th- there's been a schism in, in, in amateur snooker. Obviously, there's now another governing body, World Snooker Federation, which again, Matt Hewitt, a lot of work for the IBSF still have their stuff uh, but yeah people like Jim they've been doing it for so long and again doing it for the love of it you know then it's not to enrich themselves or anything like that they do it for the love of it um, yeah and, and he you know he's a very familiar face at those sort of events and, um, and and I guess we're looking for the next generation of Irish players Aaron Hill's coming on the tour which is great news be great to have a few more. I noticed Davey Morris. There was a piece up uh, on the World Snooker website, yeah. WST website, I should say. Um, and he he seems he's not not done yet with snooker. It would seem. Yeah, I mean Davey had great potential and came on the circuit, and it just seemed to struggle a bit. I, I noticed for a number of years he lost a lot of deciders, and he was very often losing to players who would have the table craft. Uh, more experienced players who would bring that experience to bear. And we've seen that a lot with guys who are really outstanding amateurs and the pro game doesn't seem to suit them as much. Having said that, he did reach a ranking event quarterfinal. And the first match Mark Selby played on the BBC as world champion was at the UK and Davey beat him. Got to the UK last 16 Mm. a couple of times. So he showed flashes of his ability. It'd be great to see him going on and doing it. But I mean, he's probably at an age now where it's not really going to happen for him, certainly to the extent that we would have hoped back then. But great lads, Davey, actually, and um, not seen him for a while. We used to play a bit of golf together years back when he was very young, actually, and just starting out on the circuit. It'd be great to see him coming on because he has been, certainly since that Doherty O'Brien era, the best prospect we've had. And for one reason or another, it didn't happen for him. And I don't think it was lack of dedication or anything like that, but just didn't work out for him on the uh, the pro scene. Just one person I want to mention as I get the feedback in my ear there. Hopefully that's not going to... Continue. Okay. No, it's it's gone. Um, Just briefly, because she made the cut. Pat Wells, um, who has worked at snooker for many, many years, behind the scenes, she was a hospitality uh, uh, girl for the Embassy Peel Tobacco brand, now works as one of the event managers for World Snooker. And I just wanted to mention that whole crew, because particularly in relation to what happened at the Championship League and what's going to happen in Milton Keynes, they've got a, a, they've got long days there trying to make sure everything's right. I mean, that's true anyway, but with all the new regulations, um, th- those people work very hard. And uh, Pat has been at it for a long time, always very, very cheerful, very friendly. And I know all the players really respect her. You can always go to her, you know, if you need a logo stuck on or you need something, you know, fetching for you or whatever she she'll just fix things and um again you know uh, that's a side that maybe we don't always talk about it's I was it, say, well, hmm. just on that i was going to say about pat if, if you tried to explain to someone what pat's role in the game is you couldn't hmm. but it, it's not because she's not doing anything it's because she's doing everything yeah, and, yeah you know you could see her anywhere one minute she might be out in the arena selling programs and earpieces then as you say she's fixing a logo on uh, the players championship which was actually the last tournament i was at i arrived to collect my pass she's there on the front desk and i think she's from the sheffield area actually like a lot of those women who got involved in you know working for embassy behind the scenes and that and uh, her daughter actually worked at the crucible for a while as well so uh, yeah i mean people like that again much like the terry Lyons category that i mentioned mm. earlier. i mean terry uh, came from very much a snooker background now pat and i'm sure she wouldn't mind me telling this little anecdote because she's never claimed to be a snooker expert 
there was one tournament that unusually she was actually sitting down for a few minutes. <laughs> and the, someone conceded on, we'll say, the yellow, and the referee started taking the balls out of the pockets and putting them back on the table. And she's like, what's he doing? There's still balls on the table. So it just shows you for all that, you know, she's not come from a snooker background. And for all those years, she's actually got very little opportunity to see any of the game because she's always been running around doing one thing or another. But yeah, people like Pat, again, just so important to the running of these events. And uh, it's great that she's still around after all this time. Yeah, always cheerful. And actually, had she been had she been at the 1952 World Championship, um, well, the disputed one, Horace Lindrum and Clark McConaughey. You mentioned about um, why, why you, you know why they're getting the balls out the the, the pocket. There's still some on the table. Well, Clive's done a piece because Snooker Scene. I should have mentioned this last week. Snooker Scene will be returning next month. It's been obviously with everything that's been going on, it's not been coming out. But the July issue will be out uh, in a couple of weeks. And Clive's written a piece about because someone has done some research on that final. And they not only did they play 35 dead frames in it, which must have been torture for everybody, but they decided that they, they essentially, a bit like the old pot black, would have to pot every ball in every frame. So even if someone went 90 nil up and, you know, there's the last red and the colours are on, they've got to basically play the frame out. They thought that they thought in those days that was what the public wanted. Um, a few years later, the World Championship ceased to exist. <laughs> um, so, 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 yeah. So it, there is a precedent for what you said there. But thankfully, that was uh, that was. I mean, there was best of 145. I mean, come on. Well, you look at it now. The tournament in Milton Keynes the other week. They were playing best of four, and they didn't yeah. play the dead frames there. I mean, they, you know, they were tough in the old days. They were tough. Anyway, um, so that's it. That's that's our little flavour of some of the people who uh, you could put forward as unsung heroes. Let us know what you think, any other names, any people you think we've missed out, people who maybe have been special to you or you want to mention, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, and that's the address for any correspondence. We had a few emails, which we'll get to in future weeks, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We've been suggesting books um, to read during this lockdown period, although lockdown seems to sort of – seems to have just been decided that it kind of is not a thing now i mean i was out yesterday it seemed back to normal again almost um but anyway if you are off work and you want to uh, read a snooker book there's only one really to suggest this week and it's willie thorne's book um taking a punt on my life in 2011 it's quite um there's some difficult stuff in there i mean obviously the gambling was something that he really, really struggled with. He tells the story about how he commentated on that match at the Scottish Masters, John Parrott, Ken Doherty, when Paris Q had gone missing, would lost it in the post or something. And and he heavily backed Ken, and of course John Parrott won, and he lost, he had 38 grand on the match. He tells that story, that actually opens the book. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that will give you more of a, a flavour of Willie's life and career. There's a lot of funny anecdotes in there as well. Um, and yeah, so that's taking a punt on my life. By Willie Thorne. Uh, next week, all being well, uh, coronavirus tests permitted, I will be at Milton Keynes. I'm not going to attempt to do what we did when I was there last time and record That's a fine. podcast. Yeah. So I think you, you can have the week off. I may drag Phil Yates into it um, if we can socially distance and record at the same time. Um, but uh, thank you. You can you can enjoy the tournament. Who's, who's your tip then for next week? Well, I mean, in a field like that, I mean, how do you pick anyone? Um, I think if if Trump gets on a bit of a roll and gets back to the sort of form he was in earlier in the year, and you know with a best of seventeen to start off, you do have time to play your way back in. So it's very hard to tip against him, really. I mean, we talk about the great season he's been having, and it is still the same season, which seems strange because it's been going on so long. But he was actually getting better, I felt, as the season went on in some ways. So how do you tip against him at the moment? Like I say, though, I'll be interested to see just who's been working on their game and who hasn't. And I think there'll be a few telltale signs along the way.
I my theory, and it is only a theory, which could get shot down. Sean Murphy, okay, he's not he didn't play in the Championship League, but Sean will be so grateful to be back playing snooker that mm. I I think he almost won't put himself under the sort of normal tournament pressure. He'd just be happy to be there. And, you know, he's played great this season. He's won a couple of tournaments. Um, It's a theory. We'll see how he gets on. Um, But that's it for this week. Uh, So do let us know any of your thoughts. And I guess we end really by raising a glass to Willie Thorne and saying, Willie, thanks for the memories and we'll really miss you. Here, here. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.